Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. We're back with Tanya and Joey Medea, paranormal investigators. Their new book is Roommates from Beyond, How to Live in a Haunted Home. So the two of you uh, married, you sort of merged your two families and you moved to New Jersey, a brick township, which is on the Jersey Shore, I guess. You describe, I guess, I think this was an apartment, if I remember correctly, and you describe it as a, a paranormal starter kit. Uh, maybe, Joey, uh, you can jump here in here and tell me about what was happening in this apartment. Right, exactly. So let's just, um, <clears throat> we try to be precise as possible and scientific. And so let's just lay down some terminology real quick for as we go. So, so a ghost is a recently deceased person who still has some business on earth and has not yet crossed over. Once a ghost cross over, either with help or on their own, they become a spirit. The other thing I want to talk about real quick to set this up is um, the four stages of a haunting. Uh, there's manifestation, which uh, is typically like poltergeist-type activity, um, creaks, uh, weird behavior of the lights, those kinds of things, manifestation, things moving around, going missing, you find them, uh, maybe phantom voices, things like that. From there, you go to infestation, and that is, it's so repetitive that it's beginning to affect your life. Uh, infestation, if it gets bad enough, can go to oppression, um, where you're losing sleep, you become irritable. That's an energy that dark entities can feed on. And then the, the ultimate end game in rare cases would be pose- possession, where the person is so broken down energetically, psychologically, and otherwise that a dark entity could actually uh, get inside their energy field. So Brick is our paranormal starter kit because it was very much just manifestation. Um, it, was, it was a couple of ghosts. Uh, I'm going to leave some of it to Tanya because she experienced most of it. I was still at this point very much a newbie. I had grown up Catholic. Uh, mysticism was my life. I had almost become a priest after I made confirmation when I was in eighth grade. And um, so, but one thing that I want to talk about to get Brick started is what we called the smelly man. <laughs> it was especially in our boys' room. So they, let me see, Dan was probably... 14, Jeremy was four at this time, and we had a little baby girl. But the boys shared a room with bunk beds, typical typical for boys. And we'd go in their room, and we would get hit in the face with this deep, musky B.O., very, very unpleasant. So, of course, being a dad... Minute, as the father... As the, have, yeah, I was just going to say, as the, as the father of 14-year-olds, I was just going to say, you know, I can relate... Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. So, so mundane first, right? Which is always our way. Let's debunk. So, and plus, I'm not thinking in these terms at all. I'm I'm very much an outsider and a newbie in, in all this paranormal business, other than a weird experience with a Ouija board when I was 16. So, I'm getting on the boys. I'm like, guys, it's not enough to stand under the water. You got to use the soap. Right? I'm, I'm sounding like my father, and they're going, Dad, it's not us. It's not us. So, we're smelling the extra blankets on the bed. All this kind of thing then it starts moving around the house and they're at school and yet there's the smell it's not me it's not tanya it's not the baby she has her own distinct smell and so it is this it is this ghost that made himself known uh through his smell and then it kind of that was that was the starter of the starter kit and then tanya if you want to take over with some of the the other things sure 
Um, so our daughter at the time was just uh, a little over a year, I guess, when we first moved in, just old enough to start talking, possibly even around two. And she would she would think that, you know, she was seeing something like at one point she said, oh, why is Jeremy walking down the hall? I thought he was at school and, and he was at school. So she was seeing things that we weren't seeing. Uh, one afternoon I was in the kitchen and she came in. Uh, there's an old man on the sofa in the living room. And I went in there and obviously I didn't see anything at that point. Um, and then another time I was washing dishes in the kitchen. Uh, I was in the apartment by myself and Jolie's uh, bouncy ball was in front of the sofa in the living room. And as I'm washing dishes, I feel something bump me on my feet, and I look down, and it's her bouncy ball. And what's really unusual about that is it would have had to have rolled on its own. I mean, it was sitting stationary. It would have had to have started to roll, turn two sharp corners, and then roll into the kitchen before it could find its way to my feet. So that really got my attention. Um, and then there was another occasion uh, where I, I bet. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, I'll bet that caught your attention. It reminds me, whenever I think of that rolling ball incident, it reminds me of the movie The Changeling with George C. Scott. And there's that yes. scene where this bouncy ball comes bouncing down the stairs, and it's absolutely chilling. I don't know what it is about children's toys and ghosts, but it gets me every time. <laughs> yeah, and that, by the way, is one of our favorite movies at Halloween. We always watch that. Um yeah, it really did because there was no explanation for how it made its way from sitting in front of the sofa into the kitchen. And like I said, nobody else was home at the time. So um, there was another time that I was taking a nap on the on the couch, this you know same couch where Jolie said she had seen the old man, and I was just kind of in that liminal state, and I just got this sense of people and lots of people sort of walking through that space, uh, almost like uh, like Grand Central Station, just all these people kind of walking by. Um, it was almost like that was overlaid on, the you know, our living room. So that was very interesting. And then the other thing that was really um, amazing at that time was I started having these pretty regular bouts of sleep paralysis. And that was the only sort of concerning thing. I mean, it was all kind of unusual and, and a little startling for sure, but but in terms of really frightening, um, the sleep paralysis was the only thing that, that was really terribly frightening. So on a pretty regular basis, you know, classic sleep paralysis events, I would uh, wake up but not be able to move, sense a presence in the room, uh, have these very bizarre sort of dreams right before I would wake up and, and have this sleep paralysis. So, yeah, it was a very... Um, you started keeping <laughs> uh, dream journals. Yes. Yeah, that was right around the time. Um, that we just kind of started looking into uh, different things like um, lucid dreaming, uh, dream journaling, dream analysis, and so we were keeping very regular dream journals at the time, and, and boy, were the dreams vivid. Now, what's the connection between these manifestations and 
dreaming? Uh, in other words, were you? Why were you keeping a dream journal? Did you think that there was a connection? Can can ghosts somehow influence dreams? Oh, they definitely can. It's a way for for us who have not fully developed our psychic ability to get communications. This was at a time where, and I and I think that's why our frequency was was dialing to these things. Uh, Tanya had begun her studies with uh, pranic and energy healing. She was working with a mentor. We both were. I was uh, reading Robert Moss's books, and I was experimenting with um, astral travel, drum journeying. I was starting to study shamanism, altered states, you know, through natural meditation, all of that kind of stuff, um, mantra-based meditation. So I think everything for us was ratcheting up. And we were playing catch up. And I'm a super analytical person, which I think has served us well as a as a team and as paranormal investigators, um, which resulted in the Paranormal Bill of Rights and all. So I think the dreams and the information were coming because we were opening ourselves up energetically. And I brought a weird sort of I'm a big original Star Trek fan. There's an episode where Spock winds up with these manta ray like creatures. And I wound up bringing one of these things back in my energetic field, sort of attached to my back. So at this point, again, where Tanya had given up an apartment and, you know, fled in the night, a very poltergeist kind of, you know, the film poltergeist kind of activity. Um, I'm bringing this space debris back, this weird mantra-like thing. So we're constantly trying to play catch up. And the universe and everything was very gentle with us as far as that starter kit but i think that's why the dream journals to kind of go we have all this new data coming in that's nothing like we've ever experienced in our lives we better start cataloging it because it's fascinating and what sort of connections did you make between these manifestations and the dream journals that you were keeping at that time i'm not sure um except except that um, they were so unusual. Uh, and I've always been a very vivid dreamer um, and have always been very aware of my dreams. But as Joey said, because we were opening ourselves up um, and studying all these new um, different modalities, uh, the, the dreams were just so unusual. I mean, I was dreaming about things that were at the time very new to me. A lot of a lot of dreams about um alien contact, which before then wasn't really something that, that was in my consciousness that much. So that was very interesting. Um and really a lot of dreams about these malevolent like presences. And I'm not really sure if that was actually happening in the dream in uh in my uh, space as I was dreaming or if I was just dreaming about it because I was becoming more open to it. But certainly when you're opening your energies to those things, um, you know, you do make yourself a little bit more vulnerable to them. Uh, you talked about the four stages of a haunting, manifestation, infestation, oppression, and possession. If left unchecked, if you have a manifestation and it's a, let's call it a darker energy, uh, with malevolent intent, if it's left unchecked, will it progress from the manifestation through infestation, oppression, and finally to possession? It 
It will. And, and as we know, there, there are thousands of exorcists. I, I know they've been on coast to coast. We've listened very carefully. Tanya and I have experienced possession twice, and one was very unique. It was a possession that happened over lifetimes and had been entrenched in this woman. But this one night, we witnessed an attempted possession. A woman had invited us to her house. She was a colleague. Um, Richard, her eyes changed color. I, I heard her voice battling with another voice. She was reciting prayers. She asked for a rosary. So it can get to that. I would say in most of the cases that we've looked at, we get called at the oppression stage. Oppression will often happen because people just get fatigued. They get tired. And I believe for a dark entity, as I term them, a non-human um Entity, because I think the word demon um, is very much like jinn, depending on your religious background, your philosophy, your your cultural sensitivities. You'll call these things different things, but they want to feed on the energy of fear. They want to feed on the energy of agitation. It's very much, I think, the Amityville horror thing of uh, the father breaking down and becoming very agitated and so we, what we say as investigators is try to catch it in manifestation, and that's a big thing with the book. When it's just manifestation, you can clear it through uh, sage and palo santo, through intention, right, salt water, uh, showers, all that kind of stuff. There are communication tools to find out what's there. Tanya and I, it's very important to us to say that probably 85 to 90 percent of what we encounter are ghosts or spirits, and they want something. They have a story to tell or they want recognition. Um, so catch it, catch it early, because as we all know, yes, it can get bad and destroy lives and, and make horrible things happen. But if they're simply uh, human ghosts that have passed on, you can, and they are manifestations, but you can coexist with them, right? That's that's sort of, I guess, the purpose in part of, of your book is how to live in a haunted home, how to coexist with these entities, correct? Absolutely. Um, you know, it's really just, as Joey mentioned before, thinking of them as simply people without bodies and, um, you know, and understanding that, um, you know, if they're attached to a space, if they are, for example, a ghost that hasn't moved on and, and they just have a huge attachment perhaps to the space, um, similar to when we moved into the, to the home that we're living in now, the man who built this home in 1929 um, had a huge attachment to it. He was still here and very much felt like we were the intruders in his space. So it took a little bit of time for us to understand that, you know, what is it that he really wants? And, of course, he wanted to be acknowledged and he wanted to be um, included is what we eventually came to find out. And once we started to do that, a lot of the activity, um, as far as he was concerned, really died down. Um, so just kind of understanding from the point of view of, you know, they're just people without bodies. You don't necessarily have to be afraid um, it, it's always interesting to me why we are so afraid. And, and certainly I felt the same way for many years as well, just because, you know, it was 
um, a person without a body, it was suddenly very scary. But but there's no reason to believe that they're malevolent, uh, you know, or that they wish you any harm in any way. They simply, in many cases, just want to be included or be acknowledged or be remembered. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.